Welcome to the PEDSNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, pediatric nurse practitioner and clinical assistant professor at the Catholic University of America in Washington, DC. In this season of exploring cognitive bias in healthcare, we're now talking about case studies that demonstrate examples of bias. In each case, the initial evaluation of a seemingly simple chief complaint contains cognitive shortcomings that later unfold to reveal an acute care diagnosis. Since you already know that the initial impression was wrong, you can try to figure out the sources of bias and what you might have done differently after listening to this mini-series. At the end of the case, we'll cover some best evidence-based practices to help you safely think metacognitively. I'll remind you, these case discussions aren't about judgment or a humble brag. They're to get you thinking about how to approach complex patients so that you can identify sick kids. Let me set the stage for you. I was working with my clinical mentor in a satellite community pediatric emergency room. We were both the new kids on the block. Me, a pretty recent graduate, and him, a junior attending, both new to town. We didn't know each other well yet. This was one of our first shifts together, just him and me against a waiting room full of patients. The next patient ready to be seen was a 17-year-old female with complaint of headache and arm pain. I review the chart and see that she's had four visits in the last week. Count them, four. Each time she was evaluated by an attending physician, diagnosed with a musculoskeletal injury, and discharged with NSAIDs for her arm pain. I was caught somewhere between wanting to roll my eyes about the excessive number of visits she'd had and feeling uneasy about something strange going on. After reading through the prior visits, I went in the room. On first glance, she was a well-appearing adolescent. She was sitting on the stretcher and smiled when I walked in the room, pleased that it was her turn in the queue. She was really sweet and conversational, so no alarm bells went off in my head just yet. But one thing I couldn't help but notice was her size. I won't euphemize it, she was obese, 130 kilos to be exact. And I remember thinking that the number of prior visits she'd had seemed disproportionate to any physical activity she was likely participating in. And sure, that was definitely an assumption on my behalf, part of my implicit bias. But for me, it also highlighted how discordant the complaint and the past management was. I introduced myself to her and mom and started to ask questions. I could see that the story was more obtuse than it seemed at first, and she was desperate to have someone take her pain seriously. She told me, the other doctors just keep focusing on the arm pain and they would give me ibuprofen and send me home, but... I don't really do anything after school except homework and watch TV, so I haven't done anything to get hurt. They kept saying that it must be my backpack, but it hurts worse even after I stopped carrying it. And it's not really pain in my arm, it's more tingling. My neck and my head are what hurt. And I started to have some tingling of my own. My spidey sense. Her insistence that she wasn't being heard was a loud alarm for me to pay attention. So I completely changed course and opened up my differential diagnosis. The headache had been going on for a couple of weeks, but it had grown worse over the last week. It seems to wax and wane on its own at times, becoming worse when she's busy doing things and better when she lays down to rest. 
Tylenol and ibuprofen can help temporarily, but the pain always comes back. It's a 10 out of 10, throbbing right behind her eyes. It's woken her from sleep before, but she doesn't have any associated nausea or vomiting. No changes in her gait or speech, no fever or other illnesses. She's been having blurred vision, which she attributed to not wearing her prescription eyeglasses. But she's also had brief one to two second flashes of vision loss, and then it comes back on its own. No double vision, floaters, or tunnel vision. The pain in her neck is sharp, more prominent on the right, and she also feels paresthesias down the right arm to her fingers. She's never had headaches before, and no one in her family has a history of migraines, seizures, thyroid problems, or other neurologic disease. She takes depot shots regularly so she doesn't get a period. She takes no other medications and has no other past medical or surgical history. On physical exam, her vital signs were normal. Her head was normal cephalic, atraumatic. Pupils were equal, round, and reactive to light and accommodation. And here's the big red flag. I saw papilledema. Me. I wouldn't consider myself particularly skilled at a fundoscopic exam. So if I appreciated papilledema, then it was probably pretty impressive. And her visual acuity was poor. 2100 on the right, 2080 on the left, 2080 together. But she didn't have her glasses, so that made it difficult to interpret. Her respiratory, cardiovascular, and abdominal exams were unremarkable. And no surprise to me, she had full range of motion in all extremities without tenderness or swelling. The most important system to evaluate would be the neurologic system. So often the neurologic exam gets short-changed if a patient is awake and alert, but there are many important components to a full neurologic assessment. Let's review them. First, there's mental status, which is a general assessment of the patient's level of consciousness, appearance, activity, and emotional state. If these are normal, you can clinically decide that normal mental status is present. Next, cranial nerves two through 12. We typically skip testing the olfactory nerve. It's important to test each individual nerve in a patient with a neurologic complaint, rather than just saying that they're grossly intact. You should also test motor strength and function along with sensation. Test proprioception and cerebellar function by examining coordination and gait. And last but not least is deep tendon reflexes. A complete neurologic exam can take a while depending on the age and cooperation of the child. So I encourage you to practice the same exam over and over and over again until it becomes habit so that you can confidently assess patients with neurologic complaints and not neglect to notice deficits just because the patient is chatting pleasantly. Our patient was alert and oriented times three, cooperative with normal judgment. Her cranial nerves 2 through 12 were intact. Specifically, visual fields were normal. Extraocular movements were intact without nystagmus. Strength was 5 out of 5 in upper and lower extremities. She had reported paresthesias in the right arm along the dermatomes of the cervical spine. She had normal sensation to touch, normal coordination and tandem gait. Her deep tendon reflexes were 2 plus in the upper and lower extremities. I remember walking out of the room and going up to my mentor to ask for her help. And instead of presenting the patient formally, I started off with, 
So I want to put a needle in this girl's spine and I just want to make sure you agree with me. Did you have the same feeling? What worried you? What was on your differential diagnosis? Before we get to a differential and workup, let's synthesize the visit with a real summary statement. This is a 17-year-old, non-toxic, obese female with a two-week history of worsening headache warranting four prior emergency room visits. She reports cervical root paresthesias in the right arm, blurry vision, and transient vision loss. On exam, she has bilateral papilledema without any other gross neurologic deficits. Now, because we note papilledema, brief vision loss, and paresthesias, along with her headaches, your differential diagnosis should include items that are likely to cause headaches and increased intracranial pressure, like a space-occupying lesion. These are intracranial pathologies that take up space in the skull, like a brain tumor, cyst, or abscess. Obstructive hydrocephalus, commonly from a Chiari malformation or a central venous sinus thrombosis. Idiopathic intracranial hypertension, otherwise known as pseudotumor cerebri. Increased CSF production, like from a choroid plexus papilloma, or decreased CSF absorption, secondary to something like infection from meningitis or following a cerebral vascular accident and other etiologies of papilledema, such as diabetes or thyroid-related optic neuropathy. We ended up going into the room together to confirm some physical exam findings, and when we came out, he looked at me and said, okay, can I hold the manometer? That's the device that manually attaches to the spinal needle and measures the opening intracranial pressure of the CSF flowing from the spinal column. He also suggested that we get a CT to make sure she didn't have a space-occupying lesion, which could cause herniation if we LP'd her unknowingly. By the time the CT came back normal, we were both very confident that our patient could have pseudotumor cerebri, an idiopathic form of increased intracranial pressure that's strongly associated with obese females of childbearing age. Although not present in our patient, Two of the most common complaints in patients with pseudotumor are diplopia and esotropia caused by cranial nerve 6 palsies. This is because the sixth nerve is so small that it's very sensitive to increases in ICP, and it's often the first cranial nerve to react to such changes. Now it was time for the LP, both to rule out other causes of her symptoms such as meningitis, but also for that opening pressure. I had the big job of completing the LP while my mentor managed the manometer. An LP on an adolescent often feels more difficult to us pediatric providers, especially if obesity is an obstacle because excess adipose tissue can obscure your bony landmarks. I'm a lefty doing procedural skills in a right-handed world, so I tend to prefer getting an LP upright, but the ICP has to be measured with the patient lying down so after I got the needle in, we'd have to lay her in the right lateral decubitus position and attach the stopcock. A pretty tricky maneuver, even with two people. So there was a lot of pressure, no pun intended, riding on a successful procedure. Once the manometer is attached, you open the stopcock and let the CSF flow. The fluid rises up into the chamber and starts to pulsate at the level that indicates the ICP. Then you turn the stopcock and drain the fluid into any tubes or collecting device. 
What we failed to consider was that the manometer only goes to 50 and it's open on top. So when we opened the stopcock to measure her ICP, it ran up over the top, spilling all over the patient, the bed, the floor. For reference, an opening pressure greater than 28 centimeters of water is considered diagnostic for pseudotumor in children. And ours was greater than 50. In a rush to collect the fluid, we flipped the stopcock on the opposite side and the CSF flowed down to our tubes with the same unexpected pressure, again going everywhere. The mother was on the other side of the bed looking at us with this worried face and my mentor just cool, calm, and collected says, don't worry, this is therapeutic. The spillage was a perfectly welcome mishap because the release eased our patient's headache and we still had plenty of fluid for our CSF tubes. So what happened to our patient? Patients with idiopathic intracranial hypertension are managed with several approaches. The LP is both diagnostic and therapeutic, as you heard, and diuretics, most commonly carbonic anhydrase inhibitors like acetazolamide or Diamox, help to decrease CSF production. Weight loss can be helpful in achieving remission. Otherwise, refractory symptoms may need management in collaboration with neurosurgery and ophthalmology with the goal of preventing or reversing vision loss. Our patient was admitted to the main children's hospital to be evaluated by neurosurgery and ophthalmology. She got an MRI and was managed therapeutically with Diamox and one additional LP to take off a little bit of pressure. Now it's time to step back and reflect on what could have been done differently. Why did it take five visits to diagnose her? Why did she feel so misheard by the other providers? Did you note any other signs of bias in this case? Well, I think there was a combination of other cognitive biases that led to diagnostic error of this patient. First was the bandwagon effect. It's like diagnostic momentum. The patient carries a label with them from visit to visit, and the more people that think the patient has a certain diagnosis, the more likely a new provider is to join the bandwagon and agree. Next is a form of cognitive bias called zebra retreat actually backing away from a rare diagnosis because it's so uncommon. This patient was a true zebra, a rare diagnosis, which is easy to overlook in a busy emergency department. The annual incidence of pseudotumor cerebri in all women aged 14 to 44 years is only 3.5 per 100,000. Why back away from such a presentation that seemed so obvious to us later? Well, remember that I always say common things are common, and some providers may have been reticent to put a needle in a kid's back in a busy community emergency department. It would be easier to attribute her symptoms to something else. Kick the can down the road a few days, let her follow up with her PCP, and hope that a more common musculoskeletal complaint sorted itself out with NSAIDs and rice therapy. And remember when I mentioned my implicit bias about the patient's activity level related to her obesity? There is such thing as weight bias, described as a wide range of discriminatory and harmful attitudes towards people living with obesity. Phelan et al.'s 2016 narrative of peer-reviewed literature on obesity stigma in healthcare 
summarized its findings with, quote, many healthcare providers hold strong negative attitudes and stereotypes about people with obesity. There's considerable evidence that such attitudes influence person perceptions, judgment, interpersonal behavior, and decision-making. These attitudes may impact the care they provide, end quote. And this is heartbreaking to me. We've discussed the importance of exploring your own internal biases in earlier episodes, which is an essential component of providing objective, compassionate care to every patient. Now, as I said in the last episode, I am not here to judge. I just want to reemphasize that it's important to think more metacognitively in situations where a patient returns with the same complaint over and over and over again. Albert Einstein said it best. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Okay, other than being self-aware and considering the zebras, what else can I do to prevent diagnostic error? As I said in the first episode of our mini-series, diagnostic error is inherently difficult to study prospectively. So much of our research is retrospective and on an individual level. It's almost always a look in the rearview mirror, a post hoc analysis where hindsight is 2020. And that's okay. Our best practice number five has that covered. Closed loop communication with feedback. In this case, it would have been appropriate to contact the three prior providers to discuss what happened with our encounter. Some hospital systems send emergency providers a 72-hour bounce-back list. This list is automatically generated for providers if their patient returns to the ED within 72 hours of discharge. Specifically, it highlights any change in the diagnosis and whether the patient was admitted. Now, sometimes you can expect a progression of disease, like if your patient was seen with a diagnosis of URI and returned later with an otitis media. Or if a patient with bronchiolitis presents on day two of illness and requires admission on day four of illness. But special attention should be paid when both are different. The problem with a bounce back list like this is that they only impact individual providers. And that's if they have the self-motivation in a busy workday to review the chart. And that brings me to best practice number six, cognitive autopsies. Kind of like what we're doing right now. These case discussions about bias in the diagnostic process are ideal to add to your regularly scheduled morbidity and mortality conferences to prompt reflection and promote learning. Well, is there anything I can do to actually prevent diagnostic error? As we talked about in the last episode, there's a paucity of literature on how to prevent diagnostic error in pediatrics. But the problem is on the mind of researchers and techies. Those little computers we carry around in our pockets have great potential for application or web-based clinical decision support. But Marshall et al.'s 2022 narrative review on diagnostic error in pediatrics notes that, quote, additional research is needed to better integrate these tools into the care system and to reveal their real-world effectiveness, end quote. Another need they mention is highlighted by our obese patients' missed diagnosis, and that's to identify at-risk populations, scenarios, and diagnoses that are prone to diagnostic error 
so that we can watch and advocate for vulnerable populations at risk for healthcare disparities. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the Peds NP, where we focus on the practical application of evidence-based practice. If you think you have a great case for a podcast or have learning needs and requests, I invite you to reach out to thepedsnp at gmail.com. There's no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of The Peds NP. You can see show notes and references at thepedsnp.com. Tweet me at The Peds NP or find me on Instagram at The Peds NP Podcast. Remember that this isn't just a podcast. You've got to pay attention to every kid. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.